Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. A couple marches this weekend. One is the March for Life, my annual March for there. Life. Your sister's there? And my niece, two of my nieces. Yep. Good there. for them. Very good. They left yesterday. It's an annual event for them. 46th annual event, in fact. Uh, Frank Pavone, Father Frank Pavone, good op-ed in the Washington Examiner, uh, distinguishing the March for Life, say, from the other march taking place this weekend that even the DNC and the AFL-CIO and all kinds of other left groups can't stomach anymore. We'll get to that in a second, but uh, Pavone uh, saying, uh, writing, I should say. If we look closely at the ar uh, argument the marchers are putting forward to counter Roe v. Wade. It's pretty straightforward. Roe v. Wade is about exclusion, and the pro-life movement is about inclusion, inclusion of the unborn. As we confront a nation that permits abortion, elective abortion throughout pregnancy, and a movement that calls for abortion on demand without apology, we certainly have reason to march, and we have reason for the greatest confidence as we do so in the righteousness of our cause. And I'll tell you what, it's worth noting, worth noting, the one area, I would argue, where cultural Marxists are actually on their heels, where people who believe in the founding principles and the Judeo-Christian values that undergird them of this great nation, where we are on the march, so to speak, is on life. Abortions have declined 25% in this country in the last decade. Wow. Now, Illinois is an outlier, but generally speaking, uh, we're on the march, and the generation that follows millennials looks to be the most pro-life generation since Gen Xers. So that's a hopeful note. Now, contrasting to that other march, the, the uh, increasingly diminutive women's march, Tamika Mallory's had a bit of a tough week. Oh, no. One of the women's march organizers. First, she got shredded by Meghan McCain on The View. Oh, yeah, and we played that here. That was fantastic. And then she decided she hadn't had enough, so she went over to sit down with Margaret Hoover at firing line. And uh, uh, she didn't use the Ocasio-Cortez defense when talking about Israel because of, you know, her closeness to Farrakhan and his virulent anti-Semitism, sort of the same thing McCain held her to account for. Uh, Mallory didn't use the Ocasio-Cortez defense of <laughs> smile, teethy, teethy grin. I'm not exactly a Middle East policy expert. No, Tamika Mallory is. She's a deep thinker. Listen to this exchange. The simple question. Yeah. What? Does Israel have the right to exist? The Palestinians are native to the land. You know, they were there um, for a very long time. And so they're native to the land. Do you feel that the Jewish people are native as well? I mean, I know I understand the history that, yeah. you know, that um, there are people who have a number of uh, sort of ideologies around why the Jewish people feel this should be their land. I'm not Jewish. So for me to speak to that is not fair. If you're willing to say that the Palestinians are native, but not the Jews are native, I mean, you're not I'm Palestinian either. I'm, because I'm speaking of the people who we know are being brutally oppressed in this moment. That's just the reality. Is it your view that Israel has a right to exist as a nation? I have said many times that I feel everyone has a right to exist. I feel everyone has a right to exist. I just don't feel that anyone has a right to exist at the uh, disposal of another group. In your view, does that include Israelis in Israel? I believe that all people have the right to exist. 
and that Palestinians are also suffering with a great mm. crisis and that there are other Jewish scholars who will sit here oh. and say the same. I, I'm, I, I'm done talking about this. Okay. So can move. okay our, I just don't our, think it requires scholarly knowledge to be able to say that Israel has a right to exist. I, it's, it, it, again, I believe everyone has the right to exist. Standard answer. A uh, couple of things there. One is I'm so glad Tamika Mallory's come out as pro-life. Everybody has the right to exist. Thank you for that. Now, the actual question is, the state of Israel, does it have a right to exist? And she just goes to, you know, human beings shouldn't be callously murdered. Oh, okay, that's not exactly the question. So we know how she feels. Fun we know the answer without her saying it. Well, fun times, yeah. And, uh, hey, the good news for Tamika Mallory is she's got some new allies in Congress. You've got uh, the Muslim-American female from uh, Michigan, Rashida Tlaib. And you got the Muslim-American female... Uh, from Minnesota, Ilhan Omar, who tweeted, Israel has hypnotized the world. May Allah awaken the people and help them see the evil doings of Israel. All right. Way to ingratiate yourself. For more on uh, this topic of uh, the uh, inspired tolerance, thoughtfulness of the left, we're pleased to be joined by David French. Of course, he's a National Review constitutional lawyer, best-selling author, veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. David? Do we have David? Oh, sorry. Oh, I, uh, oh there we go. I didn't need it. No, no problem. <laughs> sorry about that. No problem. So, uh, so David, uh, how about uh, uh, Tlaib offers uh, impeach the MFR and uh, her colleague Omar uh, next door in Minnesota says uh, we got to be awakened uh, to the evil doings of Israel. And this is all against the backdrop of this fun little march that Tamika Mallory and her friends are having this weekend. I mean, look, it's just increasingly clear that the hard left has an anti-Semitism problem that the broader Democratic Party hasn't dealt with, hasn't faced, doesn't want to talk about. And the Women's March is exhibit A of this. It's it's exhibit A, it's exhibit B, it's um, just shot through with intolerance. Uh, and that, that exchange with Tamika Mallory about Israel and Palestine was one of the more revealing and uncomfortable things that I've heard. I mean, to, to literally be unable to say that a specific nation doesn't, not being willing to just definitively declare that, it is, that a specific nation has a right to exist, and willing to be to declare that Palestinians have a right to the land and have an ancestral claim to the land, and not Jews, it, in in being unwilling to say that about Jews is really astonishing. Do you think Nancy Pelosi or any of the leaders of the Democratic Party will talk to them possibly, or have discussions with them? You know, possibly behind the scenes. I, you know, I think so long as they, they're so powerful on the left, the the Women's March leaders and sort of these the intersectional leaders of the left are so powerful on the left, and they they as Meghan McCain very accurately noted they sort of wrap themselves in their own identity to protect themselves. But these guys are so powerful on the left that it would, it would take them uttering things that are so clearly, unmistakably, and blatantly anti-Semitic uh, publicly on the record. I think to get any sort of actual condemnation from the Democrats, so long as the worst stuff is relying on reporting, even well-sourced reporting. I think the Democrats are going to hide from this. Well, and you've seen their little two-step uh, exhibited by Kristen Gillibrand, one of the many candidates who've announced for president, uh, denouncing anti-Semitism generally 
but with, you know, unwilling to talk about the Women's March or people like Tamika Mallory specifically. So that's part of the play. Oh, absolutely. You know, they're, what they're going to do is they're going to say, well, of course we hate anti-Semitism, but they don't want to alienate anyone on the left. I mean, this is the thing that happens with the Louis, the, the, the dance, the two-step that happens with Louis, Farrak- Louis Farrakhan all the time. It's, well, I, I, I don't like anti-Semitism, and no one, how dare you think that I provide any effort to anti-Semitism, but, you know, anti-Semitism isn't all that Louis Farrakhan does. I mean, and so they, they try to... <laughs> <laughs> they try to embrace that part of him and reject part of him. Which they'd never do that for David Duke. They would. They wouldn't say, "Well, you know, David Duke is." Uh, I, I reject his white supremacy, but you know, you got to hand it to him. He's got some other good ideas. Yeah, right. <laughs> Everybody focuses on the Ku Klux Klan thing. You know, he's uh, he's he, you know he's a nice little homemaker. He's a good. He's very good at gardening. He's got some gardening tips we should focus on. I mean, it's it's absurd. Um, right. Speaking of uh, absurdities and uh, Democrat candidates for president, Beto O'Rourke, Golden Boy. Beto? It it girl. Beto? Is it Beto? Beto. 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 Beto? Beto? Potato? Potato? I'll go with Beto. Uh, He's uh, doing some interviews to continue building the fanfare, but he's not being received as well, even by the D.C. press corps. Um, What's going on? Beto Rourke's uh, immigration plan for an interview he did with the uh, Bezos Post. No wall, but no specifics. I mean, he's a congressman from El Paso. Uh, the, uh, one of these fungible CNN people, Brianna Keeler, she said, um, she, reporting on Beto and her interview, he asked how we would handle immigrants who overstay their visas. He said, I don't know. I'm withdrawing troops from Syria. He said there may be a good reason, but he doesn't necessarily understand. Oy. He seemed to be passing on a lot of stuff. The Constitution, he questioned whether a 230-year-old document can be used for as a guide for today's lessons, especially international issues, and so forth. So sort of uh, being uh, met with a bit of cynicism from CNN. Well, that's not a good start to a presidential run, David. Yeah, you know, it's going to be interesting because a lot of these guys who are used to just adoring coverage because they're challenging Republicans are going to be surprised during the Democratic primary season because what they're going to face is each one of these Democrats has their own faction, has their own fans within the, you know, within the mainstream media and within particularly within the progressive media. So every one of these guys is going to kind of have the knives out for them to an extent that they haven't when they're, you know, when he's taking on the, the hated Ted Cruz. But when he's maybe a challenger for Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, you know, look, there's factions in the progressive movement. And so the honeymoon that they've experienced, that unity that they've experienced behind uh, that, that unity they've experienced behind, uh, you know, with the progressive movement behind them as they take on the Ted Cruz or as they take on the Democrats or take on Trump is going to evaporate. Now, of course, whoever emerges victorious from the Democratic primary is going to have the wind at their back again. But until then, I mean, look for a lot of negative stories about these guys. Yeah. Um, speaking about stories, the big buzz this morning is the article on BuzzFeed that says President Trump encouraged uh, a witness to make false statements under oath. Um, I know that you tweeted about that. Can you explain your tweet? Yeah. So uh, this is one of those big if true stories. Right. Um, it is, uh, you know, BuzzFeed has either got a blockbuster scoop or it's way out over its uh, it's block, I would say it's way out of its, uh, its skis aspect is obvious. Uh, if, if this is wrong, they just shame themselves. 
if this is correct, then it puts Trump in the same position that Nixon and Clinton were in. And there's one thing, uh, because both Nixon and Clinton are part of their articles of impeachment were that they encouraged witnesses to lie under oath. That's what Clinton did. He encouraged witnesses to lie under oath. He, he provided false statements to witnesses so that the witnesses would provide false statements to a grand jury. Um, this is this is stuff that has been deemed impeachable in the past. Now, uh, we we don't obviously don't know if it's true, but there is one thing that is very interesting that is in the documents that have been filed in court already, and that is that Cohen allegedly, before he uh, lied to Congress, according to the Cohen sentencing memo filed by the special counsel's office, circulated his testimony. So others saw his testimony, his false testimony, before he delivered it to Congress. And so that is a question that raises a question is who saw it? Did they know it was false? And so uh, while you know this is the kind of thing that people are saying, well, uh, now he's got to be you know impeached or be or, or resign or be impeached, uh, it is it is of that magnitude if it is true. And why do we know that? But because of the historical record, because of historical precedent, if it's true, it's suborning perjury. Right. Um, it's a crime. Uh, but, you know, we're going to have to wait and see. And that's why I wrote a, a short piece about this saying, look, the only person who can really, truly clear this up is is Mueller. Um, and we have not yet heard definitively from him. And he's going to ha- need more than Cohen's word on it uh, in terms of evidence. But he- here's the other thing, though, too. Go back to his elocution uh, at sentencing. Uh, back at the end of November. And Cohen talked about how he lied to Congress with respect to his involvement in this hotel that was never built in Moscow and communications with the Trump organization and so forth. And and then he concluded by saying, uh, in addition to the fact that he never traveled there, never been to Russia, I made these misstatements to be consistent with individual ones, Trump's, political messaging and out of loyalty to individual one. What he didn't say in his allocution, which you would think would be full disclosure, because that's the predicate to maintain a plea agreement. He didn't say I was directed by I was told to. He said I did it out of loyalty to individual one, which is a very different thing. Yeah, there is, you know, one of those that that's one of the interesting things about this. The other interesting thing is why is he why did he if he had delivered this kind of information? Then why did he uh, receive still receive a prison sentence? So that's a, a kind of a, a, a certainly a fair question. And, but the Buzzfeed report indicates that it is uh, based not just on Cohen's word, but on documents and emails and text messages and, and whatnot. So the the bottom line is you can't believe anyone involved in this. I mean, you can't <laughs> yeah, believe what, right. you know what Trump says. You can't believe what Cohen says. You just you can't believe any anybody here. So what do you go back on? And I would say that the special counsel's office would probably only go to the extent of accusing a president of supporting perjury if there was documentary evidence. If it's just Cohen versus Trump on you know who said what when, they may document the conflict in their testimony in a report, but to reach a conclusion sufficient to say that to accuse the president of supporting perjury I'm going to say they're going to need more than uh, just Cohen's word. And BuzzFeed's report indicates there's more than just Cohen's. Uh, BuzzFeed's report is in, is sourced to law enforcement uh, officials who see, who have claimed to have seen documentary evidence. So 
we'll see. Like I said, BuzzFeed could be way over its skis here. Yeah, I mean, they are do have a bit of history of uh, publishing unsubstantiated claims like the Steele dossier, for example. Uh, David French, he's a writer at National Review, constitutional lawyer, best-selling author, veteran of uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. David, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. If you're talking about it, Dan and Amy are talking about it. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer.